How's it going, everybody? Who had to take some type of alternate route to church this morning? Anyone? I actually teleported here. I've been working on that for a while, and finally happened. Hey, if we've never met before, my name is Wilson. I'm one of the executive pastors here. And I'm excited for us to continue our series this morning called Following the King. So this is kind of like the default message series we're in right now um, for the next couple of years is Following the King. And what we're doing is we're going through the entire book of Matthew, just section by section. So the title of my message this morning is Servant of Yahweh. Servant of Yahweh. And we're going to be talking about Jesus's um, identity, how he saw himself in God's big story, and then different Old Testament prophecies he was fulfilling. And um, we're going to just try and get inside of his head a little bit more, how he saw himself in the world, so that we can take how Jesus thinks and apply it to how we should think about our mission and our role in the world right now, okay? So I want to start, though, with just a very strong word of prayer for the Bengals. So if you join me, let's, let's start there, okay? Maybe we should stand up and hold hands. I don't know, sometimes Jesus would like spit on people's eyes to heal them. Like, I think we should come up with some, whatever it takes right now to, to pray this, this game in. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for real. Father, we just thank you so much for Sam Hubbard. Lord, thank you for a Cincinnati person being a hero uh, yeah, Holy Spirit, I thank you so much for your presence. Thank you that you're not limited to a room. You come and you inhabit this room. You come and fill this room. But you're also in every living room right now, every, um, every home or every car, wherever people are watching, you're also with them. So I just pray for a measure of your presence just to wash over everyone right now. Lord, we want to taste and see that you are good. So we just still our hearts right now. We, we uh, change kind of like the radio station of our mind right now to heaven and to you. And we just say, Lord, we want to hear from you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, will you quiet any anxious thoughts we have? Will you prepare us to receive, not Wilson's words, but words from the Holy Spirit? I ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak through me. Like how when Jesus would teach, and he said his words were spirit and they were life. God, I pray that my words would have substance this morning. And I pray for people to have a witness in their heart when I'm saying things that is for them and that's in line with you. But if I ever say something off base, Lord, I pray to just kind of fall out of our minds and go in one ear and out the other. But we come to your word with expectation that it'll change us. Don't let us just go through the rhythm of, oh, it's sermon time now. We're going to listen. We're reading the, the book from the living God. Wake our hearts up to that, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege it is to have your word in our hands. And I just feel right now, where everyone stand, I want to pray for persecuted Christians around the world. I just felt like to take a moment and do that. So, Lord, we just pray for the believers in Cambodia that are suffering for the gospel. 
We pray for believers in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East who have departed Islam and become followers of Jesus. Pray you would strengthen them, Lord. Pray for believers in China, God. Strengthen them. Give them joy, Lord. Angelic visitations to strengthen them. Pray you would work miracles through their hands. All over the world, Lord, where there's Christians being persecuted and suffering for you, Jesus, will you infuse hope into their hearts, God? Will you deliver them? But more than anything, will you give them steadfast, loyal faith? We pray you would grant to them steadfast, loyal faith to be faithful to your name even to death. Guard children, Lord. Pray for supernatural protection for children of believers. Even children who get orphaned because their parents die for you. We just trust you with those children, Lord, to provide for them and to raise them and to give them a safe and loving new family. Worldwide, Lord, the persecuted church, we pray blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You can go ahead and have a seat. So, we're going to conclude this morning by taking communion together. But first, we're going we're gonna to work through this section in Matthew and try and tap into the kind of bigger story that is being told by Matthew in his gospel story, okay? So um, before, we read, before we read Matthew 8, verses 14 through 17, I just want us to remember something that uh, Matthew, the guy who wrote this, he was a personal friend and follower of Jesus. He lived in Israel, in Palestine, and for approximately three years, Jesus was his rabbi, and he followed him around. He ate what he ate. He prayed when he prayed. He talked like how he talked, you know. He tried to just totally mimic, basically, his life after Jesus. And then, um, sometime after Jesus' death, resurrection, and then Matthew is standing there when Jesus ascends into heaven, you know, he, he leaves, Sometime after that, Matthew decided, I want to write down all of the stories that are circulating about Jesus and all the experiences I personally had with him. I'm going to write all those down and I'm going to do this so that, and then he pictured people he knew that he wanted to be able to know Jesus like how he had known Jesus, okay? So Matthew didn't picture us. He probably never even thought it would make it to us. He pictured um, real people he knew who were having real circumstances, who were being persecuted or were, you know, who were healed and became followers of Jesus. And he said, I'm going to write a whole collection. I'm going to write everything down I can. And then when he made that decision that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came over him. And as he wrote and as he recorded, the Holy Spirit inspired and guided what he wrote down. So there's this divine partnership that happened where Matthew, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, decided to write down an exhaustive, it's our longest gospel account um, of Jesus of Nazareth. And now Matthew was a Jew, like um, three of the other gospel writers. So we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were all um, Jews. Luke was a Greek uh, a physician is what they think. But anyway, 
each of the Gospels is pretty different from the other in, in a lot of ways. There's, some, there's, some, there's a ton of similarity, but there's also major differences. And one of the things that makes Matthew really distinct is he uses the most Jewish language out of any of the four Gospels. Like, instead of ever saying kingdom of God, I think he says it just like a handful of times, he says the kingdom of heaven. Because that was the, the Jewish worldview and paradigm for that same concept, kingdom of God. You see him giving all, he, you see him talking about the geography of Israel like a ton. The most of anybody, he's naming this city and this place and then he, you know, passed these hills. And so it's like, he's probably writing to a Jewish audience. And he's probably writing to people who are maybe even still living in Palestine, um, the, the same land that Jesus lived in, okay? So bookmark some of those thoughts as they'll come into play uh, the rest of the morning. So in Matthew, we're, we're in Matthew 8, for three chapters, Jesus had just been teaching, and he's just been giving all of this incredibly revelatory, authoritative teaching. And one of the big takeaways we should have from this whole thing called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is that something greater than the law of Moses is here. Something greater than Moses himself is here. Because what Jesus does in this whole sermon is he takes statements from Moses and then he escalates them. He says, Moses said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so the effect here is like, hey, we all know that Moses had like very serious, weighty, divine revelation. Like there was a mountain, Moses walked up it, and then a cloud and fire came down on the mountain. Uh, then Moses came down off that mountain with the law. So like they took that, they took the Old Testament law very, very seriously. It was like, this is super authoritative. We have, we, we, um, we're going to base our entire life around it. And uh, then Jesus comes along and there's no mountain of fire. <laughs> there's no cloud. And he starts superseding the law of Moses. So the, the effect for the listeners is, is going to be pretty mixed. Some of them are going to be like, okay, I saw him do those miracles, and I've been feeling like God's Messiah was coming. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to trust him. And then there's others that are like, this guy deserves to die. Like, Jesus should be killed for trying to supersede Moses. He's being unfaithful to Yahweh. So there's kind of a mixed reaction. But what we're taking from Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that something greater than the law of Moses is here. Someone greater than Moses is here. Let me jump into chapter 8, Matthew 8, and bang, 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 all these miracles happen. Right after Jesus is giving teaching that's more authoritative than Moses, he starts to do signs and wonders. And so in Matthew 8, um, verses 1 through 4, Luke gave an awesome message on this recently. A leper comes up to Jesus, wanting healing. And Jesus does the most um, counterintuitive thing you would ever do to someone who has leprosy. He touches him. It'd be like giving, going to someone with COVID and making out with them. <laughs> like, how, what should we not do, you know? <laughs> and then he goes, um, he's walking along and a centurion comes. And so I want you to imagine that Jesus is 
a black slave on a plantation in South Carolina um, hundreds of years ago. And a nearby slave master comes and, and says, Jesus, my son is sick inside. Will you heal him? And the slave says, okay, I'll heal him. In fact, he's healed. Because this Roman centurion is the oppressor. And he is the problem in Israel's life and in Jesus' life. And then uh, that takes us to where we are this week, okay? So now... This week, let's read verses 14 through 17. You know what? Instead of doing it this week, let's do it right now today. Okay. Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her. Everyone say, touched her. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Okay, so we see this um, count, like we see this little theme happening for Matthew already of healings, right? He's healed the leper. He's healed the centurion's servant. And then he's now healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then the crowds gather at Peter's mother-in-law's house, or at Peter's house, and he heals all of them. And he starts casting out demons with just a word. So what's supposed to be screaming at us at this point in time is the authority of Jesus. It's supposed to be like punching us directly in the face that this person who taught with authority now actually walks and does deeds with incredible authority. He touches a sick person. And what happens when you touch sick people? You usually get sick. <laughs> but when Jesus touches a sick person, they get healed. He is confronted with a, an oppressor, and just by a word, he heals the centurion's servant. The centurion's servant. And then he comes to Peter's mother-in-law, who's also sick, and he doesn't stand back. He comes in and touches her, and she's healed. Authority, authority, authority. And then all these sick people show up, and all these demon-possessed people show up. And what's he do? He casts out the demons with a single word. Like, it's supposed, it's supposed to be right in our face right now that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. And the question we should be asking is, if he is superseding the authority of Moses, then maybe this guy has the authority of God. If you're the original reader, you know, like if you're, a, you're an ancient Jew who's maybe seeking or not sure, but you've heard all this stuff about Jesus, you see all this and you go, wow, this guy really has authority. Now, I believe that that is who, um, who Jesus was, or who, who Matthew has in mind, is ancient Jews, who have, or Jews of this time who have now become followers of Jesus. I'm going to tell you why. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So there's this thing 
called a formula quotation. It's what theologians call a formula quotation. And it's where a quotation is used like a formula, meaning like it's used over and over and over. So this phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, is the like sixth, sixth time out of ten times that almost this exact phrase is used in the book of Matthew. Can we show them, Denise? Just show them number one. We're just going to go through ten quotes really quick, okay? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. First time this appears. Now let's go to the second time. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, and where he stayed, and where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Number three. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Number four. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. Number five. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Number six. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. These are all verses in Matthew, okay? Number seven. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> Number eight. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. Number nine. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Anyone get in the picture? Number 10. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then go to the next slide. Three other times the concept and the word fulfillment is used. So we're left 13 times in the book of Matthew. This huge, you know, Jesus didn't, after he healed those people and cast out the demons, he didn't turn and look at the camera and go, I'm doing this to fulfill Isaiah. You know, right? He didn't like stop and say that. This is an editorial comment by Matthew. He's trying to communicate something to us, the audience. So the question we, we ask is, what is he trying to communicate? What is he saying Jesus is fulfilling? So God creates Adam and Eve, okay? And he gives them authority. He gives them an assignment. And he says, I want you to multiply, fill, subdue, and rule over all creation. They jack that up pretty quick. But God doesn't revoke the assignment. Next, God calls Abraham. And he says, he's Abram at that point. He calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations, then he calls um, each of his sons, Isaac, and then Jacob. And he renews the same promise he made to Abraham until the, the nation of Israel is formed. And Israel, um, Jacob has this, has this calling that through his descendants, the whole entire earth is going to be blessed. Jacob goes, Jacob's whole family goes into slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. They get delivered. They still have this calling to be a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations. And then this guy rises up named Saul. And, and then after him, David. And they become the initial kings of Israel. And you know what David's actually called in the Old Testament? A Messiah. He's called a Messiah. And simply what the word Messiah means is anointed one. If you ever talk to a Muslim and talk to them about Jesus, they'll say, oh yeah, Isa al-Messiah. 
Jesus the Messiah, because that's what he's called in the Quran. Now, what is like the number one disagreement between Christianity and Islam? Was Jesus God? So my point here is that when we hear Messiah, we think of God, right? But to a first century Jew, when they hear Messiah, they're not necessarily going to be thinking of God. They're going to think of just like how the Muslims think of Jesus as a Messiah of an anointed one, they think of David. They think of Moses. They think of someone like Samson. People who God specifically commissions, specifically empowers, specifically gifts, that's what it means to be anointed, to do something, to do some type of task. And so in the Old Testament framework, a Messiah wasn't a deity. A Messiah wasn't necessarily God. That, that actually wasn't really within their paradigm that Messiah would be God. They're thinking, we're waiting for a new David, a new Samson-like figure. And like, who led them out of slavery? Moses. They're waiting for someone like Moses to come back around and whoop Rome's butt and lead them out of their situation. And what's more, they're expecting, so they're expecting that, that this Messiah is going to come. And around Jesus' time, the expectation for a Messiah was like at an all-time high. It was just ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. And it's because in between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the Old Testament, there was all these other books written in that time period by Jewish, but by Jews. And they were kind of like obsessed with the end of the world. That's how they were always writing and talking and thinking was all about the end of the world. And so the Jews of this day, they're waiting for a new Messiah to come to rescue them from Roman occupation. And then they think at that point, God is going to end this world and start a new world. He's going to start a new Eden. And this, this is going to be the new focus point, the new locus point of God's presence on earth and the new place where his um, his will is done, and it'll be oh, the Gentiles are going to come. They're going to become followers of Yahweh, and it's all going to be initiated through this Messiah. So their mindset is a Messiah, not who's not God, is going to come and initiate basically the apocalypse, where God will then make all things right. That's what they're waiting for. That's what they're hoping for. <clears throat> so when Jesus comes. And he not only is performing signs and wonders, he's not only healing people, he's not only teaching with authority, but he starts to actually claim to be God himself. A lot of minds are being blown. This isn't what they were expecting. This isn't, this isn't what their, their paradigm was um, for what was to happen. So back to Matthew, back to why he's, I know I just want a huge tangent, back to this fulfillment thing. What they're all waiting for is for fulfillment to happen. They're waiting for all these prophecies, this promise that God made um, to bring a new Messiah, they're waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And so what Matthew's trying to communicate, I think, by saying this over and over and over and over and over 10 times is fulfillment is here. Jesus really was the Messiah. If you've put your trust, if you've put your hope in him, um, but you're facing hard times now, because imagine what it would be like if you're in a Jewish family 
and you know, all your life, you guys are praying this prayer, worship the Lord your God, he is one. And then a man comes along and he says, hey, I am God. And you start to worship him. How do you think the rest of your family is going to feel about that? Probably not good, right? Um, maybe some persecution is going to happen in your life. Maybe you're going to get kicked out of your synagogue, your, your, your place of worship. So I believe Matthew's writing to that audience and he's exhorting them, Jesus is fulfillment. He's using their very sacred text, the Old Testament, to prove to them that they're on the right track. Their hope is not in, a, is not in the wrong place by putting their hope in Jesus. Fulfillment is here. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let's, let's look for a moment at what they expected this Messiah to be like. Turn with me to Isaiah. This isn't going to be on the screen, but flip back in your Bible to Isaiah. Chapter 49. So there's this character that arises through Isaiah's prophecies. And he starts to prophesy about this person called the servant. Verses chapter 41 through 66, over and over and over, if you read Isaiah 41 through 66, over and over and over, this figure named the servant keeps coming up. And when these when when these prophecies are being fulfilled, what's happening is it's, it's pointing to Jesus and saying, he's the fulfillment of that prophecy, this servant. He's the guy that Isaiah prophesied about. So look at what this servant would do. Isaiah 49, verse five. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather, gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has been my strength. So what's part of the, this is telling us what the servant's mission is. The servant's mission is to bring Jacob back to him. You see, Israel was not being faithful to Yahweh. And so this servant figure is going to, you know, there's this whole period of Israel's, of Israel's life where they actually start to worship other gods in God's temple, in the temple in Jerusalem. They're going, like, imagine if we had, you know, a big Buddha statue up here. And we had, like, you know, I don't know what, like, Hare, yeah, there's other gods up here. And we're adding them to our worship. That's the state of Israel. So this servant is going to come back and he's going to have, everyone's going to come back to God. But then he says this, this is awesome in verse 6, 49, verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob only. Why? Because God created everyone on earth. You know, Adam and Eve weren't Jews. Adam and Eve weren't Israelites. Noah wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. They were created before the nation of Israel, before 
um, God elected the nation, elected Abraham and formed a whole nation through him. So the whole world, God wants everyone. And so this, this servant Messiah guy, his mission isn't only to um, Israel. His mission is going to be actually to be a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, who here last week did power evangelism and prayed for a Jew in Cincinnati? Okay. But who here, just, just curious, you know, did some power evangelism in the last month, prayed for someone, prayed for a stranger? Okay. So think about how cool it is that you are, there's a whole portion of Jesus' ministry that he didn't really get to touch, that we're touching more than he did, which is reaching the Gentiles. Jesus' mission was to the Jews, and we are the Gentiles that now minister to the Gentiles. Not saying we shouldn't minister to the Jews, but we get to actually continue Jesus' ministry in a whole nother iteration. So here's one, we just looked at one thing about the servant. Let's look at Isaiah 61. Now, <coughs> this is the servant speaking. This is the, one of the most famous passages of Isaiah that Jesus quotes. You know, Jesus quotes Isaiah more than any other Old Testament prophet. And that there's significance in that because Isaiah is prophesying all about this servant. And so when Jesus continuously quotes Isaiah, he's saying without saying, I'm that servant. He goes first person into the servant prophecies, you know? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So what's he going to do? He's going to have the spirit of God on him. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, free and rescue captives. Remember, Israel as a whole is captive at this time. Now let's look at Isaiah 42, another uh, key prophecy about the servant. Isaiah 42, many of your Bibles probably just have it titled, The Servant of the Lord. <clears throat> to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is God commissioning the servant, telling him what his job is going to be. So at this point, from these, these several Isaiah passages we just read, here's some of the stuff that this... Um, servant figure is going to do, this Messiah. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to be a light to the nations. He's going to have the spirit of God on him. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to free and rescue the captives. He's going to heal the blind. So can you go to my main slide again, Denise, the, the main passage? So when we get to this last little section and it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Matthew is recognizing that Jesus is this servant figure. He's the fulfillment of their expectations. And then we see Jesus' ministry goes on to do all the things I just listed. 
He's filled the Holy Spirit. He's feeding the poor. He's casting out demons, freeing the, the oppressed, and he's healing the blind. So this is all the part of Jesus' ministry that I love to celebrate. Like, this is all the good stuff, right? Everything I've been listing. Like, if we had to say, hey, just if who wants to sign up for the job where you heal the sick? Raise our hand, you know? And like, who wants to sign up for the job where you proclaim good news to the poor, you cast out tons of demons, you feed the, you feed the hungry? Right here, sign me up. You know, who wants to be part of reaching the nations? Like, come on, sign me up for that. Well, turn to Isaiah 53 with me now. We're going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and read a whole long chunk of scripture. So starting in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. So who's being talking about here? Who's being talked about? The servant, the Messiah figure. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Now verse 1 of 53. It's it's a continued thought here. You know, the original uh, manuscripts don't have chapters and verses in them, right? Like Isaiah didn't write, okay, I'm in 53 now, verse 1. This is all added for our benefit to organize things. Who has believed our message? And And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. 
So when you read this whole thing, is your impression like, man, sign me up. I want to be a part of that team. <laughs> yes, please pierce me, Lord. Crush me. Assign me a grave with the wicked. You know what? I would just really love to be marred beyond human likeness. It would be great if when people see me, they're appalled. You know, I'm, go ahead, hold me in low esteem. I'd like to be despised. No beauty, no majesty. Oh, and yeah, by the way, you don't deserve any of it. You didn't do anything wrong, but all that's going to happen to you. Sign me up for that ministry, right? Jump out of your seats. Let's all jump up and be like, yes, sign me up for that. That's what we're signed up for. That is what we are signed up for. We don't get the glorious, fun part of Jesus' ministry and shirk and, and dispossess and reject the suffering part of his ministry. What is the church called? The body of Christ. What happened to Jesus' body? It was broken. It was beaten. It was whipped. It was killed. My friends, don't lose heart when you suffer. Don't lose heart at adversity for being a follower of Jesus. Embrace that moment. Pray that you are considered worthy to suffer for the gospel. We live in a country that um, started very, very positive and kind towards the Christian faith. You know, it's becoming increasingly less popular to be a Christian, but it's still not like going to get you beat up, okay, at this point. What will it take for us to have the type of heart that's ready to be beat up, though? What will it take for us to be ready to suffer for the gospel? What will it take for us to be the type of people that say, Lord, heal the sick through my hands, and then when that sick person I healed spits on me and, and tries to kill me, give me a heart that forgives them and loves them still. That's the thing that God is um, wanting to form in all of our hearts. That we wouldn't be in this thing of Christianity, we wouldn't be followers of Jesus for the excitement factor of healing the sick, for the excitement factor of God's presence falling on the sanctuary in worship, for the joy of having a sweet, quiet time with him and feeling secure or miraculous provision. We're supposed to be signed up for this because our leader called us. And he called us to follow in his exact, same, his exact same footsteps. So without, I don't know how to get it kind of elegant and clear, but I want us to have hearts that are ready to suffer for Jesus. And, and there's going to be different measures of that. But I want us to have hearts that are ready to suffer for Jesus. So let me just read this, this, <clears throat> this passage, and then we're going to take communion and conclude. Hebrews 12.
Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. For the joy set before him, he suffered the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's just so dope. Scorning its shame. Shaming shame is what that means. He shamed shame for thinking that shame could shame him. (laughs) And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Who's here has ever endured opposition from sinners? I I think we've all experienced that. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's me. I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding my blood in, in persecution. I have not shed my blood yet. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens anyone, everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. So grab your communion elements, please. They're in the seat back pockets in front of you, or they're in little <coughs> little baskets next to the at the end of the rows. If you're in the front row, you don't have a seat back pocket. This life isn't all there is. Suffering in this life, we, we end up in the Garden of Eden forever, you guys. When we suffer here, it's temporary. But when we're faithful, we get to be in God's bliss and joy forever. In his beautiful, amazing garden. And good things come from our suffering. Just one quick story I heard this week of someone who was suffering for the gospel. Friend of mine, we were talking, he was sharing his testimony with me and some other people. And I was asking him, so like, when did you really start following Jesus again? What was that like? And he said, when I made the decision to no longer date men, that's when I was really signing up, I'm going to follow Jesus again. So when I said no to my same-sex attraction and to engage with that, that was me recommitting my life to Jesus. After that, all of his friends staged an intervention. They were going to stage an intervention to try and talk him out of beginning to follow Jesus again. That's a great example of the type of suffering that we should all be prepared to face. We should all be prepared to step up to the plate for. And Jesus will be faithfully right next to us the whole time.
So let's remember his suffering right now as we take this communion. Take the body out. Take the little little cracker. Your body was broken for us, Jesus. You suffered for real. It's not a myth. It's not a story. In your nerve endings, you experienced fire and desolation and pain in your physical body to make atonement for our sin and to make a way for us to be born again into a living hope. So I want us all to break our cracker together on three, okay? To remember that his body was broken, okay? One, two, three. Now you can eat it. All right, I'll open it for the juice. This should remind us right now that he wants relationship with us. He shed his blood. In the biblical worldview, life is in the blood. So he gave up his life so that we could have life. He gave up his life so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be connected to the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. Thank you for making a new, fresh way for us to be in relationship with you. Strengthen us so that we can face all different kinds of opposition, all different kinds of suffering. You can drink the juice. And now by the authority of Christ, I speak to all sickness in this room, and I say, be healed. Lyme's disease, be healed in Jesus' name. Ulcerative colitis, be healed in Jesus' name. Autoimmune disorders, be healed in Jesus' name. Hearing loss, we just touch you like Jesus touched that leper, and we say, hear. Tinnitus, be healed in Jesus' name. Slipped discs and um, problems in the back, be healed in Jesus' name. Over the live stream, TMJ be healed in Jesus' name. Where hormones are out of balance and thyroids are jacked up, I say be healed in Jesus' name. Father, thank you so much for your love. I pray that you would guard everyone in the room right now from the evil one this week that you would stir a deep, deep, deep joy in them. I just release joy to be alive. That simple joy of just, wow, every breath is a gift. This world is a gift. We receive that, as we stand up out of our chairs, Lord, we receive life as a gift. I bless everyone over the live stream to have power and hope and patience. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, if you would be willing to be on the prayer team, I think a lot of our prayer team wasn't able to come this morning. Please come down to the front because we'd love to continue to pray for you. But um, hope you're encouraged. Have an amazing Sunday afternoon. Go Bengals. Who day, baby?